Thank you. It's good to be with you this morning, and I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We are continuing in our series in the book of Malachi. We're going to be uh, reading a portion from chapter 1 and then continuing on into chapter 2. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant is master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Verse 10. Oh, that there were among you one who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this is, command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are reminded that he is the great King, the high King of heaven, and that he is to be our treasure and our victory. We have sung of your love this morning in the breaking of bread. We have been reminded who is a pardoning God like thee or who has grace so rich and free. And so, Lord, as we gather here, as we continue in your presence, we would ask for your divine help. First, to understand the scriptures, Lord, as they have been written, to not bring to them our own agendas or to see in them our own wants or needs, but rather to bring before ourselves that we might be judged by your word and that we might not be a judge of your word. We pray, O oh God, that your spirit might speak to our hearts so that we would hear and that we would truly hear, that we would take it to heart. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your blessing on this 
time together, we ask your enabling to obey what that which we're about to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Of all of the current events recently, one that surprised me a great deal was when Ireland made homosexual marriage legal and where they made abortion legal. Because if I think about Catholicism and I think about the great Catholic countries in the world, Ireland has to be near the top. It has to be like, in my mind, you think Irish, you think Catholic. Just like if you think Greek, you think Orthodox. And yet it surprised me and shocked me to consider that that this great Catholic country would have uh, passed laws that were in such contradistinction to what the Word of God teaches, that they would legalize abortion and make homosexual marriage a sanctioned thing. But as I was preparing for this message, I came across an interesting observation that this um, phenomenon, if you will, is in direct connection to the scandals of the priesthood in Ireland, that the Catholic Church's standing in Ireland has plummeted because of the revelations regarding the sexual abuse scandals of the priesthood in Ireland. Thousands upon thousands of cases of young boys primarily abused by those to whom they were entrusted. Catholic priests, fathers, brothers in schools, in homes of charity. And the scandal is just beginning to unfold. And the repercussions have yet to be fully felt. And I thought to myself, well, sure, now it makes perfect sense because the church is standing, the Catholic church is standing in Ireland, has been greatly diminished by the behavior of the priests. It's an, embar- an embarrassment for sure, a complete and total embarrassment. And of course, uh, it's not just Ireland that has had this problem with the Catholic priests abusing those under their care, but we've had our own scandals here in the United States that have blackened the eye of the Catholic church. But before Protestants and evangelicals pat themselves on their back, We have to admit that we've had our share of scandals as well. Scandals that have rocked our uh, reputation, if you will. Great names of the evangelical community. Names that have uh, been synonymous with, with power and prestige. And names that you're familiar with. Names like Bill Hybels or, or, uh, uh, Mark Driscoll. Or Ravi Zacharias. And we look at those and we see our, we see the scandals, we see the problems. We, we think about, you know, the problem with those in positions of leadership, the problem with those in, in positions of spiritual responsibility. And then, of course, there are the scandals in the local churches that never make the headlines because the people involved are never that important as far as the world is concerned. And yet, whose harm is as uh, important and significant in terms of the work, in terms of the kingdom of God. How many people have walked away from the church? How many people have walked away from the community of faith because of the harm done to them by those who bear the name of Christ, especially those in positions of leadership? As we come to this book and we recognize that Malachi is writing a book that is addressing a people who are guilty of spiritual drift, 
we must recognize that a, a good portion of this book is directed to the spiritual leadership of Israel. As we read in verse 6, he speaks directly to the priests. And it's to the priests that the first chapter is directed to. And then in chapter 2, uh, again, that is reiterated. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. And we consider the role of the Old Testament priest, when we consider what function they had in the, in the Israel, Israel, the ancient Israel community, we find that, that they had two primary roles, that they had two primary functions that were embodied in their role. They had two jobs, if you will, that they were to do. Uh, in terms of their position, in terms of their position, the, the priest was the go-between. They were the go-between between God and the people. They stood before God on behalf of the people, and they represented God to the people. And they did that in two primary ways. In Deuteronomy 33, 10, we find those two functions articulated. They shall teach you the ordinances to Jacob, and your law, they shall teach you your ordinance to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. In that one verse, we find the role of the go-between of the Old Testament priest. They were to take the word of God and communicate it on behalf of God to the people of God. They were also to go for the people before God and offer sacrifices to God. They were the go-betweens. They were the mediators between God and the people. They represented God to the people and people to their God. They did that in the offerings, and they did that by adjudicating the law, by teaching the law, by being the experts in the law, by using the law to uh, decide cases and disputes, to apply the law to people's lives in a meaningful way. This was the role of the priest in the Old Testament. Now we come to the New Testament, and we find that the priesthood as a clerical system has been dispensed with. God has done away with it. It's done now. As Paul would write, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That the Lord Jesus Christ has become our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So the Aaronic priesthood has been set aside. The class of priests, that clerical group that was standing between God and the people, has no longer any function under the new covenant. The great high priest has taken his place. He has become for us the sacrifice that atones and the priest who offers it. And we rejoice. We are glad that now there isn't a sacrificial system that has to be continually repeated over and over and over again. And so we come to Malachi and we think, let's just close the book. It has nothing to do with us. I mean, it's written to a, a priesthood that no longer exists. 
It's written to a clerical system that no longer functions. There is no more temple. There are no more sacrifices. There's no more functionaries who are performing this role. We have our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Malachi was written to an ancient people in an ancient economy under an old covenant that it no longer exists. And so what profit would there be in spending any time thinking about this ancient book? Well, we know, we know from the scriptures that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And when the apostle Paul wrote those words, he did not primarily have the New Testament in mind because it had not yet been completed, but rather the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He would write that these things are written for our example, that we might find comfort and encouragement and instruction. But there's also another thing that is critical to our understanding. And that is that this these verses that we're looking at here, they, the mistake that we have made, particularly in the Protestant church, we, you know, look at the Catholic church and the mistakes that that community has made in terms of their understanding of the scripture. But when we look at what we have done in the evangelical community and the evangelical world, the role of the pastor has often been synonymous with the role of the priest. That when a, when the church has embodied one person with the responsibility to stand before the congregation on behalf of God, that our model, if you will, in that role has often been the Old Testament priesthood. Now, while we may have dropped the label priest in our Protestant Reformation, functionally, in many ways, the minister, the pastor, the reverend, functions in a similar capacity. But this letter, this prophecy, was not written just for them. Of course, it could have a function in that capacity, as they are, in a sense, priests. But they are no more priests than any and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter would tell us in his first letter, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he would write, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Malachi's admonitions to the priesthood were a specific message to a specific group of people at a particular time in history, and it was relevant to them. It was appropriate and relevant to them. But by application, this transcends the context of its day. By the principles revealed here, it reaches across the centuries and speaks to us as the current priests of God. And you see, there was a problem with the priests. 
there was a problem with the priests. And if I could distill that problem into, into two basic behaviors on their part, you would begin to understand how these relate to us immediately. The first one is they did not fear God. And we're going to unpackage that, I hope, in a little bit. And they did not keep faith with him. They did not fear God, and they did not keep faith with him. In verse 5 of chapter 2, my covenant was with him, was one of life and peace. I gave that covenant to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in honor. He stood in awe of my name. And what we need to see here is like, what does it mean to fear God, right? Well, when you look at this, when you look at what's going on here, you see things like this, right? You see them not taking it to heart. Like God says to them, he says, "I, you did not take it to heart. You did not listen. You did not take it to heart. And he says, you're not taking it to heart. What does it mean to not fear God? It means not to take him seriously. To not take him seriously. When we look at this and we ask ourselves and we look at this verse, the word fear and awe in the same sentence. In the Old Testament, I was reading, this is not a common pairing, but wherever it is paired, fear and awe, it is an association with like terror and horror. It's, 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 it's terrifying. So it's unusual here where it's used in a positive light. It's really interesting when you think about what the word awe means here. It literally means to be shattered, to be shattered, to be broken into pieces. Many years ago, my wife and I were with someone and we were had the idea, it was a beautiful night, we we're going to walk across the George Washington Bridge. And I don't know if we've ever done that. I can tell you I've never done it. And the reason why I never did it was because I got to the first major, I don't even know what the technical term is, pylon, the first major span of the bridge. And I was literally struck down with terror. I mean, I was on my knees grasping the railing. I was in awe. I had, and I admit, an irrational fear of death. I was afraid I was going to die. I was afraid I was going to fall. And where did it put me? On my knees. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time we've ever felt that way about God? Now you might say, well, we're not supposed to fear God that way. We're not supposed to be cringing in terror. But I honestly wasn't afraid like the GW Bridge was evil and trying to harm me. My fear was irrational because I thought the bridge might kill me. 
Let me ask you this. What did Jesus mean when he said to the disciples, do not fear man who have only the power to kill the body, but after they have done nothing, that can do nothing else, but rather fear him who not only has the power to kill, but after that to cast into hell. Jesus says, fear him. Now, in the same paragraph, seconds later, he says, don't fear, because you are much more value than many sparrows. Do not fear, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And what we find in this, in this relationship with God is that there has to be from us an acknowledgement of who it is we serve. There has to be an understanding on some level that we're not just dealing with our best friend, even though he is our best friend. He is our best friend who also happens to be the Almighty. He is our best friend who also happens to be the creator of all the universe. He is our best friend, but he also happens to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there is just a recognition of what that means. Shattered. Broken in pieces. We think this morning about the love of God. We talk about the love of God. And I think to myself, Lord, I don't understand this the way I should because I have a feeling that if I really grasp what this love was, even in the smallest measure, I don't think I would be able to not cry. I don't think I would not be able to like bow my head. I would not be able to actually lift up my eyes because of what this means. When I look about, when I look at myself and I see what, what my sin looks like, like my particular recipe of sin in my life, And it's different from you. It's different from Manasseh, as we looked at it in the Old Testament. But what we recognize is that recipe of sin, that composite, that is my carnal nature. When I look at that in any kind of honest way, I'm repulsed. I'm offended. I look at it and say, that's disgusting. What does the most holy God think about that sin? And yet, As we saw here, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. But look at the consequences. Look at the consequences of not being in shock and awe of the Lord of hosts. We see it in chapter 1, verse 6. They do not honor him. They do not respect him. They ask, how have we despised your name? How have we defiled your name? You say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. They defile his name by the things they say. By the things they say. The table of the Lord is to, is defiled. Its fruit is to be despised. Now, that's an interesting 
statement there, right? Because they were accepting, okay, the priests were accepting inferior sacrifices. They were taking these sacrifices from the people and accepting them and then offering them on the altar. And because they were inferior sacrifices, they did not instruct the people. They did not rebuke the people. They did not call the people to account. They did not teach them what was proper. They were people who were offering illegitimate sacrifices to God, and the priests were offering that to them. Now, if you understand anything about the Levitical priesthood, you need to understand this, that the priesthood was served by the people through the sacrificial system. Portions of the sacrifices that the priests received and offered to the Lord were kept by the priests for their own sustenance. They received their own food from the tithes and the offerings that the people gave. And so when the people are giving substandard sacrifices, their quality of life dropped. If the people are getting second, giving second-rate offerings, the priests are getting second-rate food. If the priests are offering the lame, the sick, the, the ones that nobody wants, and this is what the priests are getting, and what do they say? Oh, this is disgusting, this food. This is awful. This is just terrible. The table of the Lord is defiled. Its food is to be despised. But they were the ones responsible. And they were complaining about it. They went on to say how tiresome this is. How irksome. They were saying, serving the Lord, what a weary thing. How weary. How wearisome. How irksome. How annoying. All these people with all their problems. How annoying. All all these issues we have to deal with. How irksome. How tiresome this all is. But it wasn't only what they said, it was what they did. God said, you present the blind for sacrifice. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? God says, would you offer this to the governor? I mean, try offering this to the governor. I mean, literally... This is not fit for human consumption, and you're offering it to me. The sacrifices were lame. They were sick. They were not fit for human consumption. There were people who were swindling God. In verse 14 of chapter 1, cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blushed, a blemished animal to the Lord. In other words, they were, they were guilty of the same kind of sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed in Acts chapter five. 
where they had a promised unblemished sacrifice, but then they substituted it for one that was blemished and unworthy. They were engaged in worthless worship. In verse 10 of chapter 1, God exasperated, says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God is literally saying, please, would someone just shut the doors of the temple and stop this nonsense? This, these sacrifices are useless. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Your worship is worthless. I am not pleased with you. It's sobering to consider that you and me, that we're a royal priesthood. That we're a holy priesthood. What is our worship? Is it worthless? What would God say of my worship individually and our worship collectively? They did not keep faith with God. My covenant, verse 5, with him in chapter 2 was one of life and peace, and I gave them a covenant of fear, and he feared me, stood in awe of my name. There was a covenant that God made, not just with Abraham, not just with David, but he also made a covenant with the Levites. He made a covenant with the Levites. They had a role in the kingdom of God, in the ancient economy. It was a covenant of life and peace. And we learned from chapter 2 that they were instructing the people with truth, that they were to demonstrate a life of righteousness and peace, that they were to turn the people back from their sin, that they were to preserve the knowledge and be the Lord's messenger. And as we come to that, we look at that, and we see this, but then in verse 8, we read these words, but as for you, but as for you. In other words, the covenant that was made and the responsibilities they had in that covenant, they had now broken faith with God in that covenant. And what did they do? They turned aside from the way. The way. In other words, they were offering lame sacrifices and they had lousy attitudes. They were offering lame sacrifices and they had lousy attitudes. And their behavior had caused many to stumble. They have corrupted the covenant and they showed partiality. What was the consequences of not keeping faith with God? In verse 1 and 2, and now this is the commandment for you, priest, if you do not listen, if you do not take the heart to honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, then the curse will come upon you. The curse will come upon you. Your offspring will suffer, verse 3. And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts. That's a very polite word. It literally is the word feces. God is saying you're going to have feces on your faces. Now, why is that? Because what they have done is they've discredited the worship. 
they have not honored his name. And because this refuse, this awful, this, this filth is now on their faces, because it's unclean, they are unclean. And because they are unclean, they are unfit for duty. They had not taken God seriously. He says, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. Now, when you look at these verses in chapter 1, 11 through 14, God is speaking about that period of time when Christ will reign on the earth. And every nation on earth will pay him homage. And every kingdom, every government will be subject to his reign. He will be the greatest on earth. Do we take him seriously knowing, if we understand prophecy correctly, that you and me will be with him in that kingdom? That we will be his representatives then? And the responsibilities we have in that kingdom will be largely built upon our faithfulness to the covenant now? These priests were despised and humiliated before the people. That was the consequence of their not fearing God and not keeping faith with him. Do I fear God? I have to say that there are times I fear God in all the wrong ways. I fear God in ways that he doesn't want me to fear. And I must confess that when I'm fearing God in those inappropriate ways, it's really all about me. I'm afraid of what I've done, and I focus on my failure, and I focus on my sin, and I focus on, uh, on my shortcomings, and I'm all cringing about whether or not God is loving me or accepting me. And maybe you're like me. Maybe when something goes wrong in your life or there's some kind of uh, sin that you've been struggling with, and you just can't think of God in any way other than sort of like this ogre in heaven with a big bat who's about to bring it down on your head. That is such a misrepresentation of God. And it's fearing God in all the wrong ways. Which is ironic because if I, I think if I was fearing God the right way, two things would happen. One, I would sin less. And I have less of those things to worry about in my life. And two, I would understand that Fearing him in the right way means that I know who he is. That he's the great king who is my father, who has said, I have loved you. What was the last time you were shattered before God? I mean, literally broken before him. In awe of his mercy, in awe of his grace, in awe of his holiness in awe of his justice, in awe of his mercy. 
When was the last time that we thought about him? We sang this morning, High King of Heaven, my treasure you are. High King of Heaven, my treasure. Think about those words. The High King is my treasure. Do we keep faith with the covenant? As born again children of God, we have been brought into a relationship where God says of us, you're not slaves, you're sons and daughters. And you're sons and daughters in a kingdom where you're the priests under the great high priest. Privilege. Or all do all we see are just the burdens? All the people with their problems, all the oh well, we're gonna go back to church in person next Sunday. I got I can't wear my pajamas anymore. I gotta get dressed for church. What do we say? What do we say? Do we say that serving the Lord is pointless? Do we say why bother? Do we say whatever? Do we keep faith with the covenant? What are we presenting? We have the privilege as priests to offer sacrifice. Oh, not for our sins. That's been done once and for all. But there's lots of offerings that we're supposed to offer. We're supposed to offer our gifts. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Isn't that great? Paul is saying, I have been well supplied by the gift you sent through Epaphroditus. I've got no more needs. It's like full payment. And what does he say about that? It's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. The gifts we offer. We're told in Hebrews that we, through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, should continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to him. What am I to present to God? My gifts, my praise, my thanksgiving. Paul says in Philippians that we should present our requests to him with thanksgiving. As a priest, I get to bring an offering and present not just my praise and my thanksgiving, but my petition. Why? Because as a priest in the kingdom, I am to represent the people before God, to bring before God their needs, their sins, their issues. It's my role as a priest. Do you know that we're just supposed to be discipling people and they are an offering to God? Paul says, he is the one we proclaim, the Lord Jesus Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul said to the Philippians, you are my joy and my crown. So not only do we present our gifts, 
Not only do we present our praise, our thanksgiving, and our prayer, not only do we present our disciples and those we're discipling, we present ourselves. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What would God say of our priesthood? Are we fearing him? Are we keeping faith with him? Oswald Chambers said this. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Let us fear him and keep faith with him as his holy and royal priests. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to meditate in Malachi, Lord, and we would come and confess, Lord, that we don't fear you the way we should. We fear you in ways we shouldn't, and we don't fear you in the ways we should. And we don't, we're not in awe, Lord. We, we, we've cheapened the word awesome. We've cheapened the word awesome, Lord. To be shattered, to be broken, to be brought to our knees in your presence. Lord, that's what it means to be in awe. Help us, O oh God, to catch a glimpse. Lord, I pray that as we learn to fear you, as we learn to, to walk in awe of you, that we would remember our role as your priests, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, and that we might joyfully fulfill our duties in response to your great grace for us. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.